economics is the study of human choice in the world we live. Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. By investigating faith in economics, we can learn how they lead to human flourishing. This is the Faith in Economics podcast, a presentation of the Gortney Institute at Ottawa University. Welcome to our show today. I'm Nate Johnson, the producer and graduate assistant for the Gortney Institute. Today on our show, we have Dr. Russ McCullough, the founder of the Gortney Institute and Wayne H. Chair of Economics. We also have Dr. Justin Clark, the Menard Family Professor of Philosophy and Ethics. And finally, Dr. Peter Jacobson, the Gortney Professor of Economic Education and Research. All right. Well, today we want to talk about a global reset that came to our attention. Sounds like people want to jump on this opportunity of our broke down relationships and our broke down economy and our broke down this or that and 2020 being the perfect ashes to rebuild a perfect utopia of some sort that's filled with equality and opportunity and no hunger and all kinds of fun stuff. So Justin, tell us about this brilliant plan. Well, you said global reset, Russ, and it is intended to be a global reset, but it's also called a great reset. It's called the great reset, and it's going to be great. Is it like make the globe great again? Yes. Okay. So Trump's involved with this? Yes. Uh, Our resets are the greatest. (laughs) (laughs) So the World Economic Forum, which is an organization run by Klaus Schwab, who's a German economist put forward this kind of prediction slash policy proposal. So they put out a video a while ago. It was a couple, maybe a couple months ago now. And it said, you know, predictions for the world in 2030. And we should probably put that link on our show notes for that video. Okay. So the first, and it has like eight predictions. And the first prediction is you'll own nothing and you'll be happy. Wow. And the second prediction is whatever you want, you'll rent and it'll be delivered by drone. And then the third prediction is the U.S. won't be the primary superpower. A handful of countries will dominate. Okay. And then there's, you know, you won't die waiting for an organ transplant. We'll print them instead. Of course. And then there's, you'll eat much less meat. Oh, yeah. It'll be an occasional treat, not Because we'll print that too, right? Or grow it in a lab, the flesh or something. Rogo vegetarian. (laughs) (laughs) All of the above. (laughs) The sheer idea that we will be able to print organs, but not print meat to eat makes no sense at all. (laughs) Never mind how counterintuitive the conjunction of all these claims is. Then there's things about, you know, the amount of climate refugees there'll be, et cetera pollution, you know, there will be all these pollution taxes, but I just can't get past the first couple claims, which is that you'll own nothing and you'll be happy. The world, the U S will no longer be a superpower. You won't be able to eat meat anymore, et cetera. So this video kind of got a lot of traction when it got put out. I know I tweeted like this sounds, uh, I remember tweeting, this sounds like a threat. (laughs) And when it said you'll own nothing and be happy. And actually one of my philosophy professors where I got my doctorate replied to that tweet and said, it actually sounds like a series of threats, (laughs) Uh, you know, and this person, you know, who's replied to my tweet 
this is not a crazy person like I am, right? Uh, <laughs> this is a normal, you know, academic. Um, so uh, in addition to putting out this video, you know, you can go to the World Economic Forum's website and they have, you know, weforum.org slash great reset. So this is a series of policy proposals that they are putting forth and they are saying due to the fact that COVID-19 has created this crisis, this is a great time to restructure society and the economy in ways to make the world more, you know, as they would say, more equitable, more fair, to make the economic system more just. Yeah. Yeah, so it kind of flies in the face of the research done in terms of how people in general are happier, more economic freedom, with economic freedom being defined as well-defined property rights and individual ownership, right? So it's like completely in the face of that. Yeah. Well, interestingly, I'm not sure if they want to get rid of property rights. They just don't want you to have any. Right. <laughs> right. It's not nobody will own anything. You won't own anything. Yeah. One of the important things that uh, economist Ludwig von Mises has pointed out is that there's always property rights. It's just the form that the competition takes on varies over time. Yeah. So yeah. if someone's using something, that means you own it. I mean, just by definition, uh, if you're renting it and you use it up, then you own it. But it sounds like ultimate ownership will belong to someone else. Someone will be happier in this new world. Yeah. So any mention of the Great Reset usually gets, will get you labeled as, you know, a conspiracy theorist or something like that, right? But I'm a big fan of Dave Collum, who's a professor at Cornell. And he has a quote where he says, I'm a conspiracy theorist. I believe that rich and powerful people conspire to protect their wealth and their power. <laughs> if you don't believe that, there's a word for that. You're an idiot. <laughs> if, if you do believe that the rich and the powerful conspire to protect their wealth, but you don't like the label conspiracy theorist, there's a word for that too. You're a coward. <laughs> Yeah. There, so, and again, you know, as just pointed out, this is the, the term used by the originators. I think Prince Harry is also a big part of this. Prince Harry, along along with Schwab, you can also find, you know, if if you're curious, again, you know, about some of this stuff. Time has partnered with the Time Magazine has partnered with the World Economic Forum, and they have a whole website which is Time slash Collection slash Great Reset. Again, labeled the Great Reset. And there are several articles posted in this section, which I take to mean, you know, this is, you know, these articles have to do with the Great Reset. And they surround on, you know, things like carbon taxes, Green New Deal, inequality. So, you know, a lot of times you'll hear, hear people say, well, the Great Reset's a real thing, but the conspiracy is that it's an attempt to change policies, especially like environmental policy. We don't know where you're getting that from. But it, you know, it, it appears pretty plain as day in, on this website that that seems to be one of the things that wants to be done. That's, that's not passing value judgment. It just seems like that's part of the program. It's very odd for people to say out of one side of their mouth, you know, this is, it's absolutely crazy for you to think that we're doing this. And on the other side of their mouth to say, and by the way, we're doing this. Um, <laughs> right. Well, I think it's our job at the Gortney Institute here to provide some talking points for people that get, that encounter people saying, oh, this would be a great idea. You know, I think the, and, the, and the, these are talking points for the average Joe. I mean, how do we come back to somebody who hears this, looks at the video that looks kind of nice, like, oh, living in a world like 
where I'm the son of a son or daughter of a rich person, that's that's kind of what they're portraying, right? That you can have anything you want, you rent it or you you order it up. Yeah, so let's debunk this first claim. I think that's the craziest of all the claims is like you'll own nothing and you'll be happy and you'll just rent everything. Let's talk about economic ownership just very briefly. We can think of two different, there's more than one different aspect of ownership, but we can think of two. One is that you can use something, that's a form of ownership. The other is that you can sell something, that's a second form of ownership. What the, this idea seems to be implying, this prediction about the future that we should also bring about, seems to be implying is that you'll be able to use things, but you won't be able to sell things. So you have ownership in use, but not ownership in the ability to sell them. And so what, what incentive does this bring about? Well, the problem is that this sort of way of living, it gives you an incentive to use something up more quickly than you would otherwise. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you use it, say, if you have that game station for one day, you're going to use it all 24 hours because you might not get it until next week. Or if you're getting, for example, a car, man, you're going to put a lot of miles on that. You're going to drive it fast. You're going to put the pedal to the metal. You're not going to wash it, certainly, and you would never wash a rental car. Uh, that's that would be a ridiculous thing to do. And so you deteriorate it. Now, when you have the ability to sell something, you don't do that to something you can sell like a house, you don't deteriorate your house, because then you lose the future resale value. But in a world where you <laughs> don't have the right to sell, you just have the right to use people overuse things. That's the yeah. tragedy of the commons. Yeah. So so it's odd to me that the, this prediction about the future is that we will live in a world characterized by the classic tragedy of the commons. It seems crazy to me. Yeah, and it also seems weird that this is put forward by, you know, the left when it is, as you know, as you say, it encourages an ethic of pure consumption. Because when you can't sell something, there's... You know, absolutely no incentive for you. Well, to save when anything. we say left, I always like to be careful on what we mean by left and and or right. So this is like Marxist way left. This is communism way left. We're not talking about your democratic neighbor that maybe voted for for Joe Biden. Most likely, we're not talking about that person here. This is something different because there's plenty of Democrats in Kansas that want to keep their guns and cherish property rights and, and ownership. Yes, I mean the left in the sense where socialists want, you know, where we define socialism as state ownership of the means of production. Yeah, right. And this is exactly what it means when we say you'll own nothing, yeah. right? Yeah, absolutely. This is even farther left than that. I mean, at least Marx <laughs> thought I could have a toothbrush. Apparently I'm going to be renting my toothbrush. <laughs> Gosh, this is more than the means of production. And so that's one angle. Another angle that's, you know, big on this. And again, well, and wait, I want to, before we leave yeah, that angle, because sure. I, I thought our ability to hold something and choose when we want to consume it is just foundational, I think, to our happiness. Getting back to the own nothing and, and be happy, um, we're expanding our choice set by being able to own it. Now, their claim might be, well, people of different financial means or lower income can't own something. So this is a better system where they'll get the chance to use it. But ultimately, I think we have a lot of evidence that this system of holding and owning individual property rights has worked pretty well, whereas they're lofting out a softball somehow that we're supposed to believe that we'll be able to own nothing and rent it up or call it up. And somehow that is going to make us happier. And then that brings back to Peter's comments of where's this stuff going to come from? Is there going to be lines? It's going to change how we consume and, and short-term thinking and all that. So, all right. Sorry, Peter. 
No, no, I, I think that was a good way to round it out. And it gets into, you know, part of not owning anything is I, I my guess is that we're not going to also own our the ability to decide what energy we use, because there's mm. a, a big climate push with this. And, you know, I think it was Prince Harry who suggested things like carbon pricing. And so, you know, this, again, not a fringe thing that someone invented. This is straight out of the horse's mouth is that carbon pricing has been introduced to something that could bring back in. Again, on the Time website, they talk about the Green New Deal and the climate breaking down. So, you know, there's an interesting push in here in response to COVID. Somehow we've gone from like rebuilding from COVID to a world of whatever energy sustainability, whatever you call it. And it seems like weird bedfellows here that we we had a disease, so now we're going to fix global warming, as if as if we as if that wasn't the plan to do that before, right? It just seems odd to me. Yeah, I don't know how that many solutions could come from this problem, but uh, let the imaginations run wild. Well, this looks like a good spot to take our break, and then when we come back, we'll get into this. Sounded like anti-USA sentiment was bullet point number three of that the U.S. will not be the global power. And I think that could be an interesting conversation to, to continue on. So we'll be back in just a bit. Please subscribe on your favorite podcast app. If you use iTunes, please consider giving us a five-star review. It helps other people find us. We'd like to do a mailbag episode, so please send your questions to info at gortneyinstitute.org. The Lorton Institute at Ottawa University is the best place in the Midwest for students interested in freedom and justice and its impact on human flourishing, faith and economics in action. We have a new PPE league, which is philosophy, politics, and economics starting up here next year. Kind of an exciting term where we're going to have schools competing. Philosophy component will revolve around the importance of reason and free and honest discourse. The politics component will highlight the historical importance of the rule of law and limited government and the promotion of human flourishing. And the economics component will focus in on the role of freedom and markets in generating prosperity, focusing on the works of economists in the tradition of Adam Smith, Mises, Hayek, and Thomas Sowell. So look forward to that. If you or someone you know is looking for a college like this, contact Peter or Russ or Justin today. If you enjoy our podcast and want to support our work, please consider a one-time or reoccurring donation. Please visit donate.123povertysucks.org. All right. So we left with the teaser figuring out how Americans are going to respond to this. And I guess, Justin, you had some suggestions on responses. What were you thinking? My, my inclination whenever policies like these are put forward is just to respond with a middle finger. <laughs> you know, this claim that you'll own nothing and you'll be happy... Well, I own things right now, and you can try to come and take them if you want. You know, if if we're talking about, you know, how Americans are going to respond to this, yeah, I don't know. Molon Leib, I think, is a good way to respond to it, which is <laughs> come and take it. And uh, this is a nation that has an unbelievably high amount of gun ownership. Um, and, and I think that goes across the spectrum, bringing up my left and right thing. I mean, I, I think Democrats and Republicans of at least in the state of Kansas, are going to say, come and take it. Like, screw that. Now, I'm thinking the cohort of people that might support this might be, I don't know, New York City or something, and maybe parts of California, not even all parts, but I don't know. What do you think? Well, I mean, delusions of German grandeur notwithstanding, (laughs) 
I don't think this sells well anywhere in the United States. Yeah. I think we're going to have the middle finger thing for most people, but I, I want to come up with some arguments back to it because I don't think, let, let's face it, most Americans take for granted what's in place for us to prosper already. So we have to remind them that this ownership piece seems trivial because we all take it for granted since we were little that we have some ownership of things, but uh, it's a it's a key ingredient along with rule of law and decent police and, and court systems that not every country has. And that's where we get the data that says places that don't have these pieces aren't very happy. Yeah, one of the key arguments back, I think, is that uh, you know, especially when it comes to like, I'm using climate as the example uh, for, you know, they're, they're proposing some like, you know, carbon pricing and lowering emissions and all these things. Coronavirus hasn't clearly changed the costs and benefits on these things. You know, the, whether we like it or not, transitioning to a world of zero carbon emissions, net zero, I guess we should say zero would mean everybody's dead because we breathe out carbon, uh, <laughs> but, but you know, net zero carbon emissions, transitioning to that world is very costly. You know, gasoline is a pretty cheap source of energy, the cheapest really in human history. And transitioning to a more expensive, by definition, form of energy, otherwise people would already be using it, right? People use the least expensive thing for the, the goals they have. You know, people are generally smart like that. Transitioning to something more expensive is going to hurt people, especially people who don't have that much money in the first yeah, place. The poor, yeah. And so, you know, uh, there have been economists who have worked on this. William Nordhaus, for example, just won the Nobel Prize, and he's worked out models that estimate like optimal carbon taxes, taking into account the externality. And some countries like France and in Western Europe actually have carbon taxes that are greater than the optimal tax that's calculated by these models, taking into account climate change and, you know, with the best dyna dynamic models possible. So, it, it, you know, it just seems like and it's because they find a, it's convenient way to collect money. Yeah, that's to pay for other things. Yeah, that, that's that's yeah. right. That's right. And so, you know, the weird thing about this Great Reset is people are saying, oh, this is the perfect opportunity to implement some of these policies. Well, since it's not the perfect economic opportunity, since the costs and benefits haven't changed, I only have to surmise that what they mean by that is it's going to be easiest politically right now to do that for whatever reason. Yeah. And, and the costs have only gotten higher, right, because of the lost income and wealth that has occurred over this COVID time frame, whether it's due to shutdowns or, or other things, we, we've definitely lost some of the ability to pay for that. I think what we've seen is that in the developed countries like the United States and other places, we are the ones protecting the environment because we are richer, right? And yeah. so with wealth and higher incomes becomes the luxury of saying, maybe we should clean the air up or not pollute the stream and, and think about wildlife habitats more than putting food in people's bellies because we're so rich already. Yeah, Russ is alluding to an idea called the, the Kuznets curve, which is the idea that when you're very poor, you don't have much pollution because you can't even pollute that much if you wanted to. And when you're very rich, you don't have much pollution because you can afford to live a little bit cleaner. But when you're a developing country, someone like India, for example, you have to pollute a lot to get richer in the beginning. And so there's sort of a curve where you have less pollution as you're poor, then more as you get a little bit richer, and then less again as you get very rich. And I think that's even slightly misleading now. I mean, certainly when I was in graduate school 30 years ago, that Kuznets idea would have been there. I think now we even have India and other developing countries getting to get a free ride off of the technology that yeah. the rich Americans and rich other countries have put into place that it's so inexpensive now, they don't have to pollute the way we did 50 years ago. 
they'll be able to implement a fairly low cost technology. So not, not in a perfect standard, not yeah. the same way that we were doing, but, but certainly better than what they would have faced 50 years ago before we had developed these new technologies. No, absolutely. And then, you know, you, you, you think of the fact that, well, they have to pollute less to get rich, but they still have to pollute. Well, who's it going to hurt most if we pass like global rules on pollution? It's not the United States who already has developed and has already done the polluting, you know, earlier in the century. It's not Western Europe. It is these developing countries who still, like Russ said, are getting sort of a free ride. They have to pollute less, but they still have to pollute more than the United States to develop. And, you know, I'm, I'm sure that, you know, our response to this would be something like redistribution of wealth. But the, the point remains is that uh, these policies, the cost of benefits have not changed on them. Really, only the political opportunity seems to be what's changed for these people. Well, and the, some of these global organizations that we'll see what happens once the Biden regime comes back in. But I think that was a redistribution going on where the United States was paying the lion's share of the fees associated with whatever that organization was, or it's the Paris Climate Accord or, or other things. So the, the U.S. was kind of paying the freight. Trump kind of called them on, hey, you haven't paid your fair share for a while if this is going to really work as an agreement, then it would need to look this way. And I don't think they were willing to budge. And there's probably other things. I'm not saying uh, Trump, of course, would be the most graceful guy going into those negotiations. But nonetheless, I think there was a global redistribution in a sense, because our tax dollars as Americans were going to fund, we, we were paying the lion's share of a lot of those organizations. And yeah, so that I, was kind of a forced redistribution in a sense. Yeah, I think that was especially true out of like WHO, for example, who we ended up leaving, the World Health Organization. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I definitely agree with that. Interestingly, Schwab, and uh, oh, listeners, just one quick cred- correction. It was Prince Charles with Klaus Schwab, excuse me, not ex-Prince Harry. Ex-Prince Harry is also involved with it, but to a lesser degree. But interestingly, you know, this relates to an earlier podcast, this Great Reset podcast, because one of the things that Schwab promoted was the idea that this is going to bring about responsible capitalism, which sounds a lot like, listeners, a previous podcast we did on Milton Friedman's idea of corporate social responsibility. So I encourage you to go back and listen to that podcast as well, because we kind of uh, point out some of the issues with, you know, it sounds like a nice phrase, responsible yeah, capitalism. But conscious you, capitalism. Right? It goes by a number of different things, but somehow warm, fuzzy capitalism being different than what we already have in place. Yeah, but I I just, you know, I wanted to fit that in there because I I, I think it's a a good one for them to look at you. And I probably shouldn't have even said it that way because to me, the warm, fuzzy part comes through healthy competition. The, The parts of capitalism that we usually frown upon is actually not capitalism in the United States where it's big government and big business working together with what we call cronyism. Yeah, well, the, the, um, that's not capitalism. The warm fuzzy thing is the rhetoric of the people who want something yeah. like responsible capitalism, right? So I see where you're going with, with that. Yeah. All right. So this third claim that the USA won't be the global power, I just can't imagine that happening. I don't know. Did they work out anything more of what that would look like? It's uh, a handful of countries will dominate. Okay. Uh, they will figure it out in a big room with a bunch of smart people and figure out how to dominate by joining their resources all together. Gosh, that sounds like, wasn't it called the USSR that wanted to combine a bunch of countries together? Well, it, it is a little, I, now that you said this, I'm trying to think on who they, because this is, oh, listeners, this is a prediction, right? At, at this point, this video is saying a prediction is the US won't be the only superpower. It's not really a policy proposal necessarily. I haven't seen anything like that, but I'm trying to think who they predict will be. 
you know, and Western Europe is not like that impressive right now. There seems to be a lot of stagnation over there that the once great economies of Western Europe seem to be very much slowing down, especially Italy, France. So my only thought would be as another superpower would be China, I, I, I would think would be part of that because, you know, China seems to be growing at a rapid rate. They have a, a lot of influence on the world stage as well. So I imagine that's part of their prediction. What do you think, Justin? Well, given that it's run by Klaus Schwab, I, I would think he sees a prominent role for Germany, mm-hmm. yeah. which we should always be scared of. <laughs> well, and, and I think for our listeners, where does superpower come from? I mean, how would you define the U.S. being a superpower? What does that mean to you, Peter? Yeah, no, that's a, a tricky question. I guess it for me, the biggest power that the U.S. has that no other country has is that our currency is sort of the world reserve currency. That that seems to be the one thing that is outstanding. I guess the where other- does that come from? I don't mean to be like teacher student here because you're my colleague, but. Where, why has the U.S. been able to maintain its currency as kind of the kind of the global currency? I guess probably because of our successful financial sector. Yeah, and we buy a ton of stuff, right? Yeah. So what I'm thinking is the superpower status actually comes from the fact that we have individual ownership of stuff, and we cherish that, and we protect it, and that's what's caused the super. It's not like it's going to go away. Is my point. If most American gives the middle finger to this thing, we're still going to be the ones that are prospering in our nation because of the way it's organized. So the superpower thing emerges spontaneously from a good rule of law. Now, can that be eroded? Sure. But that, to me, our purchasing power, so to speak, is part of our superpower status. And that comes from our wealth and income. I think we did strong arm our way to that status. <laughs> what, what was it, post-World War II, just a little bit? Though I, I will agree that there is something about the U.S. There's a reason that that stayed in the U.S. that has to do with our... Yeah, it wouldn't have had to have stayed that way, yeah, once, yeah. once it opened up. You're right, yeah, when it's, right. as far as having the reserve currency thing. I guess the other thing that makes us a superpower, though, would be the military and military spending on sort of the other side of things, yeah. not spontaneously Definitely. plans, more centrally plans. We so. do have a credible threat with our awesome military power. Yeah. That only gets stronger each year as each Democrat and each Republican continues to build it up regardless. So, And that's where we get Justin in, who's probably an anti-war guy. I don't know if we need to get that sidetracked off of our main topic here. But but I guess war... That, that, oh, I that hope is, everyone's anti-war. That, that is an element to this of, of the class. I'm anti-war and I'm also anti-empire. Uh, <laughs> and yeah, so if... The U.S. not being the world superpower means something like we are bringing a lot of our troops home. Then, hey, that's a policy proposal I'm on board with. Yeah, yeah, I'll take that part of the reset. I'm all right with bringing the troops home and you know let, letting other people work out the problems in their backyard rather than us. Yeah, uh, I, I can accept that certainly. So. Yeah, there's a lot of things that we pay for in American blood and and right. and money. That, yeah. you know. and, and doesn't that come back to property rights? I think some of us who feel that way, and and I wouldn't say I, you know, if somebody's asking for our help and, you know, those, those issues and skirmishes and whatever can be very complex. If, but, but yeah, if, if we think about property rights, that's kind of coming back to our soil and we don't really, let's let them figure out their own property mm-hmm. right regime, right? Who are we to impose ourselves on them? I think kind of comes back philosophically 
to what we're talking about here about whether we own nothing or, or own everything. Yeah, a, an economist, Chris Coyne, actually points this out frequently in his work he, that there's a big issue and a sort of a weird thing where the United States, as a domestic policy, we have a lot of respect for property rights. But when we try to develop other countries after war, for example, that's the title of one of his books, we sort of do it in like a centrally plans way, which, you know, you, you wouldn't think that it would work if you're way of growing at home is to not centrally plan very much. So yeah, it would be nice to afford everyone else the opportunity to grow themselves. That'd be great. Yeah. So what about this organ transplant? A couple of last bullet points here as we wrap this thing up. Comments on organs and uh, printing those off and cat meat, meatless eating and uh, anything there. You're just talking about cats? <laughs> uh, <laughs> and, uh, eat. I, I couldn't read my own writing on my notes there. <laughs> It'd be great to print off, to be able to print off organs, right? That's fantastic. It, it's interesting that that's not the policy that's put forward because, uh, you know, again, there, there's something to be said for the fact that, like, industrial agriculture produces a lot of methane. And the fact that we subsidize that probably means we're producing way more methane than, like, is the optimal amount, quote unquote. So yeah, it seems like meat printing should be part of that. I, I find it odd that like the point of the Great Reset is that you will only have meat as a delicacy as opposed to you'll eat a lot more printed meat yeah. and it'll be really good. <laughs> that particular one seems like they're going to somehow shape our preferences. It's a little mm -hmm. different than the own nothing. You can order it up on Amazon and a drone comes and drops it off yeah. on your thing. It, it's like, no, we're going to you're going to like our way better because there's going to be less meat, which would basically be, I suppose, through banning it and the price goes super high so that you can't afford it. But. Yeah, I guess the drones are only going to deliver meat on the 29th of February. That's how it's going to work. So. <laughs> That's the meat delivery day. But yes. another way to minimize deaths by uh, for waiting for organs would be to open up an organ market, which would be something that... Well, yeah, and that about. is another podcast we need to do is the, the organ markets and how uh, that, that could be a solution. It's a delicate one, though. That's not just a no-brainer open up for organs, but, but it is one that a lot of economists have put some serious thought yeah. into, and, and I think there's a, a welfare-improving solution that involves markets with organs as well, which brings us back to ownership, Right. Again, own nothing. Do I still get to own my organs like they're in my body or does does the does You'll Klaus does Klaus rent? Is there a rental arrangement on <laughs> yeah. them that if you, somebody else needs them more than I need them, then he can come and get them? Yes. Then my rental will show up. <laughs> so I get like a uh, uh, an eviction notice for my organ at some point, potentially from Klaus. Yeah. Yes. But the point of all this, Russ, and hear me out, is that you'll be happy. Oh, yeah. Uh, un unfortunately, you know, I, I was just thinking to myself when we were talking about markets for organs, there really is an opportunity, I think, to do a reset here after COVID and to recognize the truth that like people do better planning for their lives than anybody else does. Yeah. And it would be great if we could have a reset oriented towards local and market solutions. Good point. As yeah. opposed to this idea that, you know, things need to be solved by, I assume, Amazon's drone delivery service or, you know, whoever acquires those drones. I guess Jeff Bezos won't own them because he won't own anything, but, you know, whoever owns them. And, and so it really is a shame that we, we're not taking the opportunity to talk about maybe a, a reset that puts people back in control as opposed to whoever is behind the veil of the, the Absolutely. Great Reset. Yeah. And I think there is great opportunity. And I think a lot of people have learn that, that some of the centrally planned actions have, have not gone so well and they've changed and um, realizing some of that. Uh, I think it was Hayek that I can't remember which piece it was that said, with all of your planning, let's, if you're going to do planning, plan for competition. 
mm-hmm. right? So this would give us a reset to really think about how we can involve markets and, and competition and planning for your own time horizons as you see fit. And this is how Jesus did things as well, right? Like Jesus wasn't out there holding political signs or trying to, you know, execute policy proposals. He, he was catering to individuals at a specific level, people that he knew, people that he met. You know, he didn't say, go out and use a central planning device to make disciples of all nations. Uh, that's not the model Jesus set for. <laughs> right. He discipled to individuals. It was very so, relational. You know, person-to-person communication, I think, is the the sort of thing that we see in the Bible, and I think it's the sort of reset that the world does need. Yes, thank you for circling back to that. I meant to introduce that earlier a little bit, too, that the Bible brings in lots of examples of uh, using individual property rights, and that uh, moving this direction certainly doesn't seem to be in biblical lines. So, all right, anything else? That'd be good at a cause here. We'd like to thank you all for listening to the Gortney Institute's production of Faith and Economics podcast here at Ottawa University. We appreciate your support and uh, please forward our stuff along to your friends and maybe a five-star review helps other people find us as well. Other than that, be fruitful and multiply. Thanks.